Good morning, everyone. Well, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Romans chapter 9. Um, we took the opportunity of um, Conversion Sunday to talk about what the Bible has to say about human sexuality. And then last week, we uh, commemorated Sanctity of Life um, Sunday by talking about the sanctity of human life. And so uh, we're a few weeks removed. So uh, let me refresh your memory a bit. Last time we were in the book of Romans, we covered the first 13 verses. And uh, in my introduction, maybe you'll remember, I referred to Romans chapter 9 as um, the missing chapter in the Bible. And uh, of course, I, I don't mean that literally, that it's literally missing from the Bible, but instead it seems to be missing in uh, many Christians' minds. It's, it's missing in terms of their theology, their doctrine of God, and their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. The result is an unbiblical, unbalanced, and man-centered view of God and the gospel. Romans chapter 9 says some hard things. That's why um, it's easier just to avoid it. But Romans chapter 9 is part of all scripture that is God-breathed and that is profitable for doctrine Correction, reproof, instruction, and righteousness. Uh, and so it's important that we include Romans chapter 9 as well as Psalm 103 that Wes quoted from earlier, as well as John 3.16, as well as every other passage from the Word of God. We have to look at the whole thing, the whole Word of God, the, the whole counsel of God and let God speak for himself through his word. The, the word of God is God's self-revelation about himself. And thereby, we need to let God be God. And not try to force God into some preconceived box in our minds. But we need to let God be God. So, in verses 1 through 13 in Romans chapter 9, first of all, we noticed Paul's burden for the Israelites in verses 1 through 3, because he's addressing the, the question that should come up, that does come up, did come up, if the gospel of Jesus Christ was foretold so clearly in the Old Testament, and if Jesus himself and his person and work is the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets anticipated, then why did the Jews reject him? So he talked about his burden for the Israelites, and then he talked about the privileges of the Israelites in verses 4 and 5. Then he starts to address that question that I just posed to you. He talks about the two Israels, verses 6 through 12. There's the Israel according to the flesh, and there's the Israel according to God's promise. And then uh, we noticed what Paul had to say about God's sovereign distinguishing love 
in verse 13, those really uh, stark words quoted from Malachi chapter 1, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So that brings us up to verses 14 and 24, and this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. So uh, there are two simple points. That doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon, sorry. Each of the points is sort of lengthy, but I'm just following Paul's words. So the theme is, is God fair in his sovereignty over salvation? And you'll see that as we, as we look at these um, objections that Paul addresses, this is exactly what he's talking about. He's anticipating objections to the fairness of God in his sovereignty over salvation, because that is what this is all about. And so um, the two bulletin outlines are straight out of the text. These are the objections that Paul anticipates. And the first one is in verses 14 through 18. And uh, it's, is there injustice on God's part? So notice verse 14. What shall we say then? And remember, this, is, this has to do with everything he has just been writing about. Um, so in verse 11, though the, these children, Jacob and Esau, they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So if we're honest with ourselves, when we take verses like that on board, we take them at face value, it raises this question. Is there injustice on God's part? And what's Paul's answer? By no means. By no means. But Paul's question shows that we're following his line of reasoning correctly. We're on track. He really is saying what it sounds like he's saying. And the way that Paul goes about helping us to understand here is by appealing to God's self-revelation of himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. So that's what happens in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And I think it's worth it for us to actually look at the passage. So look with me in Exodus chapter 33. We're not going to do this with all of the references that Paul makes to the Old Testament, but this one I think is helpful, especially helpful. Exodus chapter 13. And beginning in verse 18, Moses is with God on Mount Sinai. That's where God met with Moses. And in verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So in answering uh, Moses' request 
to show him God's glory, God makes all his goodness pass before him. And God continues, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And whenever you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it, that means that that is God's covenant name that we transliterate as Jehovah or, or Yahweh. And it literally means simply, I am. Or we could say, I, I am who I am, or I am that I am. And that name, Yahweh, it means that God is self-existent. He has being in and of himself. His existence is not dependent on anyone or anything outside of himself. He's sovereign. He's independent. He has all of the resources that he needs to be happy, if you will, and to accomplish his good pleasure within himself. All that is bound up in his, his self-given name, Yahweh, the Lord. And it governs the manifestation of his goodness. That's what I want you to see. So remember, he's going to pass it. He's going to make his goodness pass before Moses, but he's the Lord. I am who I am. And then following that, he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So on the one hand, God's goodness, his self-revelation, they're, they're co-located. They're, um, God's glory is bound up in his goodness. But on the other hand, it's up to him who he lavishes his goodness on. That's exactly what God says to Moses in Exodus 33, verses 18 through 19. And that's exactly how Paul interprets that passage in verse 15 of Romans chapter 9. Again, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Therefore, by the way, there is no injustice on God's part. God is sovereign in his mercy, mercy and compassion. That means that the explanation for why he has mercy on one individual, like Jacob, and not another, like Esau, or like Pharaoh, lies within God himself. It's his independent, self-contained prerogative to have mercy on one individual and not another. The explanation for God's mercy does not lie within the sinner himself. That's what a lot of good-hearted, Bible-believing Christians want to do with this passage. They, they want to say, well, God knew what Mo, um, Pharaoh was going to do ahead of time, or God knew what Esau was going to do ahead of time. So that's why 
he said what he did in this passage. But verse 16, really as well as everything we've already seen, makes that invalid. That's not what the Bible teaches. So notice verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The, the it there is the, the reception of God's mercy. And the ultimate reception of God's mercy, of course, is in salvation itself. That it does not depend on human will or exertion. That's a big statement. That's a big statement. John wrote in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth that is from the mercy of God, it's the expression of the mercy of God, is not based on the will of the flesh or the will of man. It is from God. It is of God. Next, Paul appeals to the Old Testament example of Pharaoh to illustrate his point in verse 17. And here, the citation is from Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. By the way, at the beginning of verse 17, notice, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, and if you look in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16, it's, it's God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses. And so when the scripture says something, when the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, when it says something, it's the same thing as God saying it. And the Bible uses this language just effortlessly all the time. But God had a purpose for Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up. Ultimately, it was God who was behind the dynasty that led to this particular Pharaoh being raised up to the throne in Egypt at that particular place and time. And we know that behind the scenes, there was all kinds of intrigue, palace intrigue. There were all kinds of human decisions and choices no doubt. But God says he was behind the whole thing. Ultimately, God raised up 
Pharaoh. And it was for the purpose of having these exchanges with God through Moses so that God through Moses would say, let my people go over and over and over again. And then Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go over and over and over again until the very end. And then he reluctantly did. But then his heart goes back to that same default anti-God position and he sends out his troops to try to destroy them. And you know the rest of the story where they're destroyed in the Red Sea. God had miraculously caused the Red Sea to part. And the Egyptian army comes through and the waters caved in and consumed them. So it was for that purpose, that whole purpose, that God had raised up Pharaoh. So it would have been wrong for Moses or anyone else to say to Pharaoh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Actually, God did have a plan for Pharaoh's life, but it was going to end in his destruction. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, it's just one of those passages that says something like, this is God speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God said a similar thing to Isaiah in Isaiah's commission to the people of Israel. God told Isaiah, do this, be faithful to the message, my message, don't deviate. By the way, Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. You are going to be rejected because they reject me. But keep on preaching anyway. That's what God's message to Isaiah was. And it's a similar message, a similar charge to Moses. And so here's Paul's conclusion. Verse 18. So then, based on everything I've, I've just said, Paul is saying, these examples from the Old Testament scripture my Holy Spirit-inspired logic. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a hard saying, isn't it? He hardens whomever he wills. And I think we need to pause there and talk about it. Just like a few weeks ago, when we looked in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And we noticed from Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, when Jesus himself said that if anyone would come after me, let him hate his father and mother and sister and brother and his own life also. And we noticed that that was not an absolute command from Jesus to literally hate our parents and our siblings, 
our, our loved ones. There's other commands of Scripture that tell us that we should love them. That, that's not the point. That's not what Jesus was saying. It's a, it's a comparison. In other words, our devotion to Jesus is supposed to be so supreme, so above every other love and every other devotion and commitment in this life that by comparison, it's as if we hate them. I mean, that, that's what Jesus is saying. But it helps us to interpret Romans 9 and verse 13 by, by noticing Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. And I think the same thing is true here in Romans 9 and verse 18 when Paul says, uh, and he hardens whomever he wills. So what does that mean? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that God hardens whoever he wills. Well, I certainly don't want to take away the power of that. Paul wrote that truth in those stark terms for a reason. And I don't want to sugarcoat it. I'm not trying to do that. But it is, it's always helpful, isn't it, to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So the first thing we can say is that this does not mean that God made Pharaoh sin or that God makes anyone sin or that God is responsible for anyone's sin in any way, shape, or form. The Apostle James wrote chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. In God's mind and in the universe that God has created, the absolute sovereignty of God goes hand in hand with the responsibility of mankind. Our responsibility for making sinful choices. God is not responsible for our sin. So there's that. The other reality, as we're trying to understand what this means, um, that whoever he, uh, he hardens, whomever he wills, the other reality is that there are 10 passages in the book of Exodus which say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 10 passages. And this is the reality that Paul is um, referring to here. But there are also another 10 passages, it's interesting, that say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And again, I'll say that too often Christians will, will face that reality and just say, oh, well, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and basically 
assume that God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. Our explanation must account for both of these dynamics because both are emphatically said. God hardened Pharaoh's heart ten times. Pharaoh hardened his own heart ten times. So what did God actually do in the case of Pharaoh? And you know the story. It, were these, it was these signs and wonders, these plagues. God simply revealed himself. How did God reveal himself to Moses? By causing his goodness to pass before him. Well, God revealed his glory before Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Israelites through plagues, through these judgments, these signs and wonders. He revealed his power, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his love for his people, and his hatred of sin through the signs and wonders of the plagues that we read throughout the book of Exodus. It was this revelation of God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. And why is that? Why would self-revelation of the glory of God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because he had a hard heart. He had what the Bible describes as a, a depraved heart. It doesn't mean that Pharaoh was always as evil as he could be, but it meant that his that his heart was deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, as Jeremiah put it in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. And it means, as we saw recently in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, Pharaoh fits or fit in this category. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh... That is an unchanged heart by the grace of God. A, a, a heart that is in its natural, sinful, depraved, anti-God, biased state. This is how we're all born into this world. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We don't often think of it that way, but that is what the Bible says. There's not neutral ground. People who are unconverted, who have carnal minds, are actually hostile to God. And then Paul goes on, for it does not submit to God's law, to his rule, to his authority. And then listen to these words, indeed it cannot. Verse 8, so those who are in the flesh, in other words, they're unconverted, cannot please God. Those are strong words. And those words 
apply to Pharaoh. Here are some more words that apply to Pharaoh. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And for God to say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship me. That's included in this uh, category of things of the Spirit of God. So why does the natural person not accept the things of the Spirit of God? Because Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 2.14, for they are folly to him, foolishness. And, And Paul says, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that's 1 Corinthians 2.14. And remember, the message of the cross is part of that. In chapter 1, Paul says that the message of the cross itself is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this was the natural condition of Pharaoh's heart. The psalmist, on the other hand, in Psalm 119 and in verse 18, wrote, Open my eyes. This is a prayer to God. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And that's just one example of gobs in the Bible that show our dependence on God to recognize his glory in his own self-revelation. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So think of the flip side of that. If God doesn't open my eyes, I'm not going to behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm going to think the whole thing is foolish. It's going to be folly to me. I can't understand it. I don't get it. I'm going to reject it. And that's what happened to Pharaoh. The church father Origen, the third century church father, put it this way in considering this very question. He said, The same sun that melts the wax can harden the clay. The same sun that melts the wax can harden the clay. So here's the thing. God displayed his glory before the Egyptians, before the Israelites. But there were two very different responses. The Israelites praised God and glorified God. The Egyptians did not. And especially Pharaoh did not. Was there anything inherently better about the Israelites that caused them to respond the right way to God's self-revelation compared to the Egyptians? Absolutely not. But to them... God had decided to have mercy on them. To them, he had decided to have compassion on them. 
He has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And so the Israelites had mercy to respond correctly to the light of God's revelation. The Egyptians did not. And so the same light, the same revelation comes to both. One of them, it has a Godward response. The other one hardens their hearts. It's a dynamic like that. And here's the thing. God doesn't owe any of them. He didn't owe any of them mercy. And he doesn't owe us mercy. That's, that's the definition of mercy. If God owes us something, then it's a debt. It's no longer grace. In order for grace to be grace, it has to be absolutely free. In order for something to be of mercy, it cannot be owed. It cannot be deserved. God cannot be bound, but by his own sovereign will. That's what Paul is teaching us. So, no, there's no injustice on God's part. Then number two, why does he still find fault? Why does he still find fault? Notice verse 19. You will say to me then, and isn't this true? Why does he still find fault? So this is, a, this is a good sanity check for us that, yep, we are interpreting Paul correctly. We're not putting words or thoughts into Paul's mind and into his quill or stylus. This is exactly what Paul is saying and meaning because it does raise these questions. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How does Paul answer that objection? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And he is going to give us some information that has clues, and we're going to look at that. But sometimes we do need to be put in our place. There's one God. There is but one living and true God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the savior who all, uh, for all who put their trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one God and we're not him. And at the end of the day, God doesn't owe us an answer. At the end of the day, it is not our right to put God on the witness stand and interrogate him, question him. That's why Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's how God answered Job. God spent three chapters in Job basically saying this, where were you, Job? 
When I did this and that and the other, where were you? Oh, maybe you have wisdom to do all that I have done in creation and providence. And in that upbraiding that God uh, brought before Job, God never did answer Job's objections. He never did say, all right, Job, here is why I did what I did. His answer was, Job, look at who I am. And remember who you are. And that's Paul's answer. And why is that Paul's answer? Because he's mean and hard and he's into logic. No, it's because this is God's answer. Because Paul, like all the other biblical writers, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it does get even more humbling. So notice how Paul illustrates his point. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That imagery of the potter and the clay is not new here. Isaiah uses it a lot, but not exactly like this. And I've read commentators who point out that in first century Roman households, there were no toilets. There was no indoor plumbing. Oh, only the, the elite, the super rich, and those in government <laughs> had indoor plumbing. Everybody else had vessels made from clay. Some of those vessels made of clay were used for drinking water. Other of those vessels made from the same clay were used as the household pot. And you know what I mean, right? We still call it the pot. Same lump of clay. Two very different uses. Honorable use and dishonorable use. Now that's humbling. But Paul does go on to give some insight, as I had mentioned, verses 22 and 23. So he wants us to be good with the fact that we have no standing to question God and to demand to know the answers behind his secret will. And he wants us to be good, that God's the potter and we're the clay. He has absolute right over us. But he does give us some clues. And he even phrases it like it's a clue. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
Now that's a mouthful. But there's a couple of things there. God has a desire, he says, to show his wrath and power through the the, uh, eternally unsaved. We were all unsaved, remember, at some uh, point in our lives. No one is born saved. We're all born unsaved. Some, according to God's sovereign choice and has nothing to do with the creature, some God rescues. Others he passes over. And those whom he passes over are allowed to live their lives in their sin that they love. And then in the end, ultimately, God will show his wrath and make known his power in them. By the way, speaking of God's wrath, Paul has already mentioned this. Chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is not arbitrary. God's wrath is not the result of him having a bad temper. God's wrath is his holy response to human sin, to human rebellion and Wickedness, that's the wrath of God. And the wrath of God comes upon people because of their sins. So here's a representative text, Ephesians 5 and verse 6. Paul says, after he gives a list of representative sins, then in Ephesians 5 and verse 6, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words For because of these things, and that these things are the sins in verse 5, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So never think to yourself that the picture that Paul is setting up here in Romans chapter 9 is anything like this. Like someday... There's going to be good people being punished in hell forever because they're not elect. Because God chose to harden them. But otherwise, besides that, they're good and decent people. And they were trying their best to seek the Lord. They wanted to believe in Jesus and God wouldn't let them because God didn't choose them. That is a monstrosity. That's not what the Bible teaches. And Brian used the word Calvinist. We don't usually use that word because we don't want to give anyone the impression that we're glorying in a man because we're not. But I've known and talked with many, many, many Calvinists over the years. I've never met one who said this caricature that I just shared with you. That's not what Calvinists believe. That's not what the Bible teaches. We all deserve the wrath of God because we all sin. 
but God rescues some. And that some, by the way, is a multitude that no one can number from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. Some, God rescues. Some, God has mercy on. But back to verses 22 and 23. Remember what the Old Testament says in Proverbs 16 and verse 4. The Lord has made all for himself, even the wicked for the day of doom. And commentator uh, Douglas Moo, in his commentary on the book of Romans, makes this uh, observation. Paul is asserting God's right to make from the same mass of humanity, the lump, some persons who are destined to inherit salvation and others who are destined for wrath and condemnation. And then, R.C. Sproul, he said, this is really helpful, he said, the saved get mercy. The unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. Again, the saved get mercy. The unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. The reason that unbelievers will go to hell is because of their sins. No one in hell ever sought the Lord Jesus Christ, with sincerity. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means turn away. People who end up in hell are there because they rejected God, they rebelled against God, they didn't love God, they were they were enmity against God itself. They didn't want the gospel. They didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't want to be saved from their sins because they love their sins. And they didn't want anything to interrupt that. So God gave them over to that. And it turns out that was God's eternal plan. But in time... They lived it out willingly. And then they were judged. All right. Finally, we see in Romans 9 that the sovereignty of God is Paul's explanation for why the Israelites by and large rejected the gospel. Because that's what he says in verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. So in verse 24, he brings this discussion back to the subject of the Jews. And so he says, even us, vessels of mercy, prepared for glory, even us whom he has called, it's God's calling that makes the difference. It's not 
human will, it's not the will of the flesh, it's not our background, it's not our upbringing, it has nothing to do with us, it's not in us. God calls us, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And next time, we'll see that developed even more. Uh, in closing, I'm going to make this really quick. Takeaway. What do we take away from a mouthful like that? The, the first thing is, brothers and sisters, we must trust God. We must trust God. There are things in this passage and in the Bible that you don't understand and I don't understand. And while we may not understand how God's sovereignty, man's free will, God's mercy, and God's hardening of sinners' hearts all fit together, we can be sure that in God's infinite understanding, they do. God can be trusted with this huge responsibility. And we're going to see in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, where Paul looks back at all of this and he just lifts up his arms and worship to God, as it were. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then finally, if you're not a believer this morning, God's call to you, God's message to you is not make yourself elect. It's not answer the question, am I elect? That's not the message of the gospel. Paul is going to follow Romans chapter 9 with Romans chapter 10. And in verse 9 of Romans chapter 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans chapter 9, said to the Philippians, Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, when that uh, jailer said, what shall I do to be saved? And Paul's response was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the message of the gospel. And if you're an unbeliever, that's what God calls you to do. And then here's the thing. If you do, and you really do turn from your sins to embrace the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, if you really do believe in Jesus, then you'll know that, wow, God is so gracious to me that he even enabled me to do that. Because if God just left me alone, I never would. I'd continue on in my sin and harden my heart. And so come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. And don't harden your heart like Pharaoh hardened his heart. The book of Hebrews says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts.